So Matt, last week we were talking about this concept of sentimentalism, and you brought up this idea of symbolic capital. I want to quote you from the episode. You said, when you use an event for a purpose, you are spending some sort of value or capital which that event possesses. Eventually, if you use too much of it, or you use it in trivial ways, it runs out. The credit card is now empty. Can you go into some detail on that and tell us what you mean? Yeah, you know, I think that that idea is definitely still really rough and needs some more work. Uh, it's pretty vague in a number of places. Like, for instance, there's a couple questions there. I mean, one, one of the things you're struggling with in sentimentalism is how does a symbol persist across time? How do you know that the symbol is the same thing? Like, for instance, you know, how do if I say Che Guevara, do I mean, is it literally the same symbol as somebody who said it, you know, 50 years ago? I think there's a real question there. Um, so how does a symbol persist across time and therefore possess capital? There's definitely a, a gaping hole there. Um, but the other question is, uh, where does that capital come from? How does it get stored? So I, I think that there's a, a number of ideas that need to get fleshed out there. But my initial answer would be that that capital is stored in people and the symbol only possesses that capital insofar as people believe that it possesses that capital. Um, I think that capital is essentially trust. Um, if, if, if a group of people possess some sort of trust in a symbol's efficacy, then that symbol has as much capital as the number of people and the amount of trust that they place in that symbol. Um, what do you think about that idea? It's very interesting that you place, yeah, you're kind of like almost, you're not ignoring, but you're kind of passing along the question of the item itself or the symbol itself. And you're talking about people, right. And the relationships between people. Right. And I think that that's, that's a really good starting place. I think, because when you don't do that, you run into like some weird issues. Right. And these are some of the things that I was thinking about during the week. Um, since our last talk, you know, when you, when we use things like we talk about, like the credit card is now empty, you know, we're running out of symbolic capital. I mean, it could very much just be exactly the opposite, right? I mean, if anything, the object could be fl too flooded with meanings, right? There could be too much symbolic mm. capital, right? Mm. Um, and we, so we run into like weird issues like that, where it's like, it's hard to tell if we're just like mixing up our language or if we're just completely misunderstanding the issue at all. And so this idea of, symbolic capital actually having more to do with relationships uh, like social relationships than the objects themselves is definitely something that I think that we can flesh out there. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that symbols are a way to externalize something that is kind of is immaterial. So, you know, you and I have a relationship, but what we can do is we can define that relationship through the production of an object, a token, that can then be exchanged to represent that relationship that we have. Um, we put that relationship out into the real world through some sort of act of alienation. And then that symbol comes to function in the place of our relationship, basically. I could refer to the symbol to refer to our relationship. I could destroy the symbol to destroy our relationship. All of these sort of things. But the symbol is only ever like an alienated is a process of alienation um, of some immaterial, unspoken uh, phenomena that, that has its flux, it's becoming, doesn't have any sort of solidity of its own. 
So I think that placing the value of symbols in people is putting is putting value at the source of where the symbol was produced because it's not like the symbol existed and then people came along and gave it symbolic capital. It's that people, when they produced the symbol, they invested it with symbolic capital. Interesting. Interesting. And so what would you say are some examples of that? Uh, like off the top of your head, I'm thinking like wedding rings, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like a lot of social things that we kind of assign a lot of meaning to. Um, things like wedding rings. Uh, che Guevara is also a great example, right? Che Guevara prevent, pr- provides this. It, he's a good example because not only is it something that is oftentimes abstracted, he's a, he's a figure and an image that is abstracted away from his context, right? But he's also a person that has relationships to real people in, in history. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think about events like maybe like the March on Washington. I think about how like both Democrats and Republicans both want to claim that moment, but for very different reasons. You think about how Republicans look back on the civil rights movement as this kind of vindication of capitalist equality, which says like everybody is equal because they band together and uh, through hard work and recognition and, you know, money is colorblind, basically. And But then Democrats look back on that moment and they claim that moment and they say, yeah, but like you guys were the ones who fought it every step of the way. And we were the ones who, uh, in solidarity with African-Americans, were the ones who walked with them and who fought for their civil rights. And you guys were the ones fighting us tooth and nail every step of the way. And so it, it, it's this... It is uh, it is this dense historical moment, uh, and I think I think you got it right that there's some events that are so full of capital because there's so many people who invested it with a different capital, mm. and now it's this yeah. it has these tensions within it that uh, it's why the Democrats and Republicans can both try to claim the March on Washington or MLK or the Civil Rights Movement. Um, it. it and this, again, this gets back to your point of sentimentalization, of yeah. that point of unity, of claiming that moment of Pentecost. How, how do you claim that moment when there's actually lots of different people claiming it for different reasons? Right. It, you know, it's interesting. MLK is a perfect example, right? Because MLK is kind of, he's approved and accepted and appropriated by everyone, Right. Everyone, oh, yeah. you know, no, no one in the United States is going to say, you know, yeah. MLK, unless they're crazy. No one's going to say that, oh, yeah, MLK was, you know, some crazy guy. Right. Or they're, they're, no one's going to speak ill of MLK. But it's interesting that, like, the people, for example, the hardcore conservatives that accept him, you know, you, you take those same people and put them back into MLK's day and they would be the ones that were fighting against him. Right. And this actually brings me to my second question. Right. And of course, that's, that might seem like a generalization of conservatism. And so I don't want to make it sound just like, you know, if you're conservative, you're going to be against civil rights. I think that there's a particular, there's a particular energy and a particular style of conservatism that we're all thinking about when we know about this sort of person that's using the image of MLK in a sort of manipulative fashion. Right. But so we say, if we've got an image like, or symbol like Pentecost Sunday, like MLK, like Che Guevara, all right, so symbolic capital is being spent or this object is being like flushed with that symbolic capital. 
somebody is benefiting, right? Or, or there's, you know, there's a strategy in place for a reason, right? So my question to you is, what do you think, you know, what, what is that benefit? What is the ideological goal there? Well, I think that everybody, everybody needs symbols to be able to quickly define an event. So I think that like, this is something that Zizek actually talks about a lot. He says, um, I would sell my mother into slavery to see V for Vendetta 2. And what he means by that is that, (laughs) God bless him. Like what he means is the end of V for Vendetta when everybody is all in their masks and they're storming like the parliament and it's like this people's revolution. He says that he wants to see the day after the revolution. And this is Zizek's whole, like his whole political career has been pointing out that the left does not have an answer for the day after the the revolution. And Interesting. So wow. There's this I there's this event that's happening, this dense event that happens at the end of V for Vendetta. And then Zizek is always grappling with the event. How do you retranslate the event into everyday life? Into wow. the normal functioning of a society. And I think that he I think he's really stuck. I think he um he really wants to figure out a way through, but um, he and Alain Badiou have been wrestling with this for their whole their whole sort of career. Hmm. And it's uh, what inevitably ends up happening is that event gets translated into a symbol that can then hmm. be used and deployed by many groups. Again, like the, the March in Washington was this event right. that is dense and that is you can't fit it into a single category it feels like you know an hegelian kind of world spirit sort of event but then what happens is people take that event in all of its fullness and they inevitably translate it into a symbol that is meant to just function smoothly in their ideology interesting that's a uh, that's a, a pretty weighty observation i think um I mean, it's it's not. It doesn't surprise me that Zizek, you know, someone as brilliant as he is, is wrestling with this and still doesn't have an answer for it. Um, you know, I think the BLM protests are very interesting. There, right? Mm-hmm. We talk about like the uh, Black Square activism, right? There's kind of like this, especially in like this middle class white liberalism and leftism. There's this burgeoning sense of protest, kind of. You know, we oftentimes criticize it and call it like the Berkeley protest ethic, right? Um, it's very interesting to me because there's like this sense which in which their their passion for revival and their passion for justice and their passion for uh, protest doesn't actually equate to any sort of like real world change. It just becomes like the black square on Instagram, right? Um, because even, even when revolution is at their doorstep, does that make sense? Like, are you picking up on what I'm trying to like talk about? I mean, this is the fundamental problem of political activism of hmm. how do you make a difference that makes a difference, you know, or how do you Interesting. make a change that changes something it's, it's, um, and, and I think that, I think that we also need to be aware that. So Zizek talks about the idea of how a true revolution makes all of the failed revolutions that came before it feel vindicated. It redeems them. 
And so mm. there's this there's this idea where if an event in the present can actually redeem and make whole events that happened in the past. And so I think that we have to admit that there are failed revolutions that have happened. Things like, you know, Occupy Wall Street and things like that, that right. and, and inevitably every revolution, every activist campaign is quote unquote impure because it's a group of individuals who have different stories and different motivations. But a real revolution, when it comes, when it happens, it is able to make the past revolutions a part of its story. Instead of condemning them and making them feel foolish, it, it makes itself party to them and says, hey, you were our forerunners. We could only do this because of what you did. And it, it, it dignifies the failure by showing how that failure was necessary for the present victory to happen. You know, I'm thinking of... Uh... I'm thinking of Barack Obama in this because I was, I was watching David Letterman's new show on Netflix. Uh, my next guest deserves no introduction, I, th I think is the name of it. And he interviews Obama and they talk about the civil rights movement, right? And they talk about, you know, all these massive figures, right? And uh, I, I bring up Obama. I, I don't really want to kind of have a, a critique or a conversation about Barack um, in and of himself. I'd rather have a conversation about what, kind of like these two worlds that he found himself caught in, right? Because you've got like, um, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates as well as kind of a part of this this world, right? Ta-Nehisi Coates, you, you see like Barack Obama's kind of like the progeny of this very hopeful liberal ide ideology, um, this, this, this hope for progress, this hope for change, right? This very like well-manicured um, protest system right and then you've got people like tana hesse coates and james baldwin that essentially have like kind of like lost hope they kind of talk very pessimistically about the future of america but it's interesting that they both they both attach a lot of value on the same sort of figures in history right they attach the same sort of weight on people like mlk does that make sense what do yeah, you think about I that you know, I think that you know Obama is really interesting because in some, in many ways he embodies all of the sort of white norms that like the mm. boxes you had to check just to be acceptable. Right. I mean, like his, you look at his career; he went to the best schools possible. You know, he's got like two beautiful girls, and he's got like such an adorable dog, and his wife is strong, intelligent, beautiful woman, and you're like, wow, they're like the American family, you know, like, right. Um, and so he kind of checks all those boxes. And I think that, um, but he had that like radical, he had that kind of radical early beginning, you know, in like community organizing in Chicago. And he like, he knew about like, like, you know, everybody talks about like, Oh, you know, the Republicans talk about, Oh, he's, uh, Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals, which is an amazing book, by the way. Um, Oh, I haven't read it. You really got to pick it up. Um, okay. But he he like had these radical beginnings and, you know, he was a dumb college kid, like all, like of, all of us. Um, yeah. And I think that in many ways, people were just really underwhelmed by his presidency because they really thought that he was going to deliver more than he ended up delivering. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know. I think that like I, in some ways it's like – Obama truly wasn't that different from what came before him. Cause I mean, fundamentally right. he was a capitalist. He was a neoliberal and 
You know, I mean, he's he killed more people through drone strikes than George Bush ever did. You know, it's just kind of like there's innocent people, too. Yeah, there's this dark side um, to Obama's presidency that I think people are kind of waking up to. But at the same time, I think that what makes that so painful is how much hope there was around him and how much like like when you see him as a person, you think, wow, this guy is stand up. Like I would want this guy to be a father figure, a mentor, totally, somebody totally. who leads. Like he immediately strikes you as somebody that you want to lead your community, and I think that it's that the gap between what you felt so strongly in your gut about who he was and what he represented, and what he delivered that makes the under delivery so much more painful. And what's interesting too is that he still stands, and I'm I'm not making any sort of ethical claim when I say this. So just as a just as kind of like an addendum or a precursor to what I say. Um, but I think it's interesting that despite all of that, Obama is still considered like this, this symbol of civil rights, you know, mm-hmm. but he really is just because he became president. Right. Um, it's, it's just interesting, right? Like I think that, that that's kind of how we loop back into symbolic capital, right? There's something that's happening just in the fact that Obama is an African-American man who became president you know he had the most powerful position in the world for eight years right it like that is enough to and that's significant i don't i don't want to deny that that's significant but it's interesting that like it's nothing else you know like there's no other kind of you know like he didn't he didn't fix problems of the ghetto or you know institutionalized class warfare or anything like that does does that make sense yeah and i think that that's why the the hope symbol that like the blue and red silhouette of Obama that says hope underneath it. I think that's why it represents, it can continue to function because it represents the hope that everybody felt when he was elected. And I think that you can continue to feel that hope, but like be looking for another place for that hope to land. Like in a way it's like that hope was generated in people's hearts but it couldn't land on Obama because in eight years he proved that it, he wasn't worthy of it. Really, he, he wasn't able to deliver what right. that, he wasn't able to deliver that fullness of that hope. And so now that hope is burning in people, and it's looking for a place to land. And so that's that's that symbolic capital that that image has all that capital kind of stored up in people. And if you could figure out how to channel that capital onto another particular object, you could harness all that political power that is there just waiting in people's hearts because of that unfulfilled hope and expectation. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, you know, we kind of, we're going to end it here, but there's just so much there to continue talking about. Um, talk i mean there's just so many other places that we can go there right talking more about symbolic capital thinking more about you know kind of ideological goals and the ideological benefits of certain symbols um but yeah that was that was very very interesting i'm interested also to get into our next topic Okay, and welcome back to Suffer Map. This is a podcast 
between two friends, Matthew Stanley and Tyler Dumont. I'm Tyler. And I'm Matthew. Yeah, and we are, this is episode two, uh, which is very exciting. We were really excited over our first episode. Uh, last week, we talked about sentimentalism, and we just just now wrapped up kind of like the second part of that conversation, talking about symbolic capital and ideology more generally. But this week, we're going to be taking a different direction. Uh, we're going to be talking about this essay that Matthew just released on his blog that I'm, I'm, I'm like super excited about it. When I read it and I loved it, uh, it's called Diversity and the Demand for Bureaucracy. So Matt, it's, it's pretty short. So give us a, just like a quick synopsis of your paper and what you're talking about there. Yeah. Um, a diversity in the demand for bureaucracy is a short little essay. I just kind of popped off on my Substack, um, and it kind of came out of a comment that somebody in the Foucault seminar that I'm in kind of made. They kind of made this offhanded comment about like, oh, I don't see how we can't have a, a society that has full diversity and that functions well. And I thought to myself, like, you you can't see how that wouldn't work. Um, it, it kind of struck me as like just kind of a performative comment. And I thought about like, okay, well, I actually want to think this through. Um, and the line of thought that I took for that was everything in life is a deal. There's a cost that you pay to get a benefit. Now, right. if you value diversity, you want to say, hey, I think diversity is a benefit. I think it's a good thing. Well, then you have to pay a cost for it. There's actually a cost that having diversity in your society imposes on your society. Now you could say, you know what, In <laughs> now that I consider that cost, uh, maybe it's not worth it to me. And you may decide that you don't want to pay the cost to get the benefit of diversity. Um, societies like Japan have done that. Um, there are many others, a lot of <laughs> Muslim countries have done that as well. They've said, hey, you know, we think that cultural homogeneity and one set of norms um, is just better for us. We prefer it. And um, so we're not interested in diversity because that comes with a lot of costs. Um, and I think that we as a, as a society, especially in the West, have said, hey, we think diversity is better than not having diversity. Um, it's something that we have decided as a group, and we have decided that we're going to pay the cost for it. And I was thinking through, I think the cost, one of the costs of diversity is an ever-expanding bureaucracy. And the reason I think that's the case is because in a diverse society, every group is a minority group. And if you're a minority group, you need some way to signal to the rest of the group what your particular needs and concerns and questions are. Um, and so what you end up needing is a complex set of protocols for interacting with different groups of um, mediation between groups that differ and have uh, and have um, conflicting interests or conflicting values, um, and you need ways to ensure that everybody is getting properly represented in the decision making process. So, in a society that's diverse, you end up needing this a bureaucracy that sets up lots of rules and protocols and essentially functions as this. Um, mediatorial character that buffers the different groups competing demands from one another. And so I thought about how it's ironic that we think about freedom and diversity as like leading to fewer and fewer structures is like, Oh, if things hmm, are more diverse, then there's like less structure and things are more loosey goosey. 
But if you right. think about it for a functioning society, you have as you expand your diversity, you need a greater and greater um, mechanism for managing the downsides of diversity because diversity has that cost. There's that cost that you have to manage as you expand your diversity. So um, there's a few other kind of points that I make, but we could we could get into those. I just kind of wanted to I wanted to talk about it because it's kind of fresh on my mind, um, and I felt like it was it was pretty succinct. So I just kind of wrote it in one sitting and put it out there. Yeah, no, I was really impressed with it. I thought it was, and it, it's you know how many words? It wasn't it wasn't that many. It was like two thousand or something like that, maybe a little bit more. Um, I I really liked it, and I think that one thing that stuck out to me. So a few things, and I've got some questions for you, but. <laughs> First off, just kind of to give like maybe a table of contents, I'm interested in talking about what that cost actually is, when that cost becomes too much, perhaps, and especially this idea that you present about transparency of costs. But first off, you you have this quote, you say, diversity imposes a cost on society, right? And that's kind of like one of the introductory like thesis statements that you make, as it were, right? So I kind of want to know, like, what are you saying here and what are you not saying? Right. Because that like, let's hone in on like what exactly this cost is on society, mm-hmm. um, not just outside of bureaucracy, because it's not just bureaucracy that this cost is mm-hmm. imposed. Right. So I'm 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 not hearing from you, for example, that you're advocating for some sort of like racially motivated new utopian society. Right. Like you're not saying that this cost is wrong, like an ethical evil or moral evil. Um, but you are saying that no matter what, there's some, there's some downside perhaps to a diverse society. Go ahead. Yeah. And I, I, it needs to be, it needs to be thought of in those very agnostic terms. A cost is just a price. It's something you give up. Right. And I think that everybody is sort of, everybody's aware that life is just full of trade-offs, but I think that we're not always honest about what the trade-off is that we're engaging in. I think that a lot of times in life, we don't know exactly what we're trying to get and we don't know the price that we need to pay for it. So sometimes we end up paying a really high price. And then when we get the thing, we're like, whoa, that wasn't worth it at all. Or we think that we're paying one price when we're actually paying a different price. Um, So I think a lot of kind of suffering in life comes from not being clear about the deal that you are engaged in essentially. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a huge topic here. Um, I think that the first thing that came to my mind, you know, cause you and I have talked a lot about like neoliberalism and kind of like American ideology in particular. And I think especially, and this is kind of like one of the ways that I jump off in my criticism of both the left and the right in America is this idea of like cultural imperialism. Um, both parties do it, right? So when you say, you have this quote where you say, however, these societies also have to be transparent about the additional costs, which increase levels of diversity imposed on the community, right? The first thing that comes to my mind is the fact that we kind of look askance, and maybe rightfully so, but we look askance at other cultures that are not as diverse as as us, right? And we kind of, we kind of lambast them for their lack of diversity. What do you think about that? Yeah, I actually have an article that I wrote I think it was last year um, about China specifically in this respect. I think that specifically the pandemic has made it really, really clear what the benefits of a non-diverse society are. Like, right? Yeah, totally. I think when I remember looking at China when the lockdowns first happened, and I looked at how they built a hospital from 
the ground up in seven days. From the ground up, there was nothing there. And they built one in seven days to house people because they knew they were going to need it. That's some Age of Empires level shit. I know, right? (laughs) There's no way in hell that could happen in our society. No, not at all. It would get completely locked up with red tape. There would be a long bidding process. Um, There would be people protesting it. There would be – it would would get locked up for years. It would never happen. Mm -hmm. I mean we kind of look at older societies and we wonder how they were able to erect such wonderful monuments. Like, you know, you look at Egypt. Well, it's because they had an enclosed society. They didn't have a society like ours, you know? Yeah, it makes me think of – this is really dark, but it makes me think of Louis C.K.'s line of, you know, he's like, but maybe everything (laughs) great humanity has ever done was done on the backs of slaves. Like he's making this point here that when you have less diversity, you have more ability to muster and coordinate your resources. Right. Like diversity in the, the part of the cost of diversity is building in inefficiency to the decision-making process and the allocation of resources because you value something else. You don't value speed or accuracy. You value the process itself. You've, you've said we value getting this process right more than we care about the outcome of the process. And the gamble is that if you get the process right, even if the, uh, even if the outcome isn't always the best, Overall, the outcomes will be better for everyone. That's the gamble. Yeah, um, and and kind of going back to this idea of transparency, it's not you know it's it's highly doubtful that any enclosed society like China, like Japan, like parts of the Middle East are actually honest or transparent about the downsides that they experience either, right? And this is essentially the lie of racism, right? And this is where Louis C.K.'s joke, but this is why Louis C.K.'s joke is dark, is that actually these enclosed societies, you know, these great monuments of, of mankind that we've erected are, you know, essentially masturbatory and extremely violent. I mean, they have, they have very violent Mm -hmm. backgrounds, right? You have this amazing quote that I really like too, um, where where you say they, that is the enclosed societies have chosen to forego the potentially infinite upside of the new ideas or technological breakthroughs, which diverse societies have a better statistical chance of producing and instead have chosen to implement more stable and enduring communal structures. Right. And so I think we oftentimes look at things like, you know, the pyramids at Giza and, and, you know, whatever. I mean, I mean, pick a monument. Right. And we kind of think, well, that's like a major breakthrough. That is, that is kind of like the image of human progress, but actually human progress and huge breakthroughs and technological advances are inherently messy. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing. Like the, the reason that the pyramids of Giza could get built is because somebody invented the lever and somebody invented the ramp. And I guarantee right. you it wasn't the Pharaoh. So right. like, this right. is one of the things that I, I wanted to get to, but I felt like it would clutter the paper, but bureaucracy expands because we have to manage the downside of a diverse society, but bureaucracy also expands because you also need a mechanism for capturing the value that's created by having a diverse society. Interesting. So if you have an, like a diverse society where people can go do what they want, um, you're much more likely to produce like a brilliant, crazy inventor who makes something amazing off in the woods. Now, in order to capitalize off of the fact that your society is like, hey, we're, we've imposed this cost on ourselves in order to increase diversity. And because we're more diverse, we're okay with this guy being crazy off in the woods um, because occasionally he makes amazing stuff and he doesn't bother us. So we're cool with it. 
Right. But you need a mechanism for taking the amazing stuff that the guy produces and saying, hey, that's amazing what you made, but you don't have the resources to make 5,000 of those. It took you a year to make one. Um, and we're really thankful for that. We want to find a way to like uh, acknowledge and honor the value you created for the community. But we we are here to connect resources to what you did so that we can all benefit from the value that you created. So you need somebody who can figure out a way to connect the resources so that the cool thing that the crazy guy in the woods invented can turn into an amazing product that everybody can enjoy in their homes. Interesting. Yeah. So one thing that I, I generally try to you know move away from is kind of like this easy assumption of even messy systems. You know, you'll hear people say things like, they'll have like these aphorism or aphorisms or like these one-liners well that where they'll say you know democracy isn't it's it's the worst system but it's the best that we've got you know like they'll kind of like throw these one-liners out as a way to get like stop themselves from being held accountable you know they'll say capitalism is awful but at least it gives us freedom right um I don't, this is not what I hear you saying either. Right. Mm -hmm. Although I think that, that could be maybe a, a bad reading of what you're saying. Right. You're pointing out that there is always going to be massive downsides to, you know, especially in larger communities, there are always going to be those downsides, right. In a insulated community, the downside is that people get crushed, right? Like the outsider is always the outsider and can never be the insider. Right. Whereas inversely or on the opposite end, the, in our sort of society, this sort of like enclosed safety is something that is completely lost oftentimes, right? And so those are like, those are pretty significant, but equal downsides in my mind. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think about a guy like Elon Musk, who right. is sort of the perfect example of this. And like, admittedly, Elon Musk is not crazy guy in the woods, you know, who doesn't have any resources. He came from a rich family, came to the US, did a PhD in mechanical engineering. But the, the dude is sort of a classic example of if you are just really smart and focused on solving problems that people actually uh, experience, you can produce something amazing. And in a diverse, because like in a diverse society like the U S you can find people who are willing to get on board and to fund you and to help you and to collaborate with you. And you have ways of getting your word out about what you're working on and sharing what you're working on and finding other talented people um, right. It's it, because of the, the, the freedom that is created by that diversity, the freedom to uh, be able to get a hold of the resources you need is what creates incredible outcomes like Tesla, SpaceX, the Boring Company, Neuralink, the, these sort of projects that Elon's working on. Um, it's really, it, I feel like America is the only place that could have could have truly produced the things that Elon has done. Absolutely. I think, you know, you bring up Elon, which I think is a great example because we were both in the clubhouse meeting with Elon. I was in the first half of it, right? You're in for the second or for all of it, right? Um, Elon is a great example. I remember in that, in that clubhouse, it was so funny because there were so many like weird, like just kind of like questions of adoration where people were like, what's it like to be Elon Musk? You know, and like these kind of like ridiculous, like I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, this guy, like I probably wouldn't 
ever want to like spend time with Elon Musk. Like, you know what I'm saying? But like, I'm here because I think that he's got insane talent, insane ability, and he's worked his, his ass off to create something that I really respect. Right. So I'm listening because I want to hear, uh, like, I want to hear what his thoughts are on his work. Right. And how he's gotten there. But someone asked this really like kind of stupid adoration question where they're like, why aren't there more people like Elon Musk, right? And I think there are better ways to put that that sound less like, you know, kind of pedantic or whatever. But uh, he responds in saying, well, no one wants to, because what I do is extremely difficult, right? Like I'm, I work way too hard. And I think a great example, the reason why Elon Musk is, is such a great example is because I, I wish I had the paper on me, but we've, we, ascend, we, we know that like, the vast majority of work or industry is usually performed by the small, by a small amount of people, right? Mm-hmm. The, the most amount of innovation, the most amount of industry, people like you and me, for example, like, you know, we've got a lot of stuff on our plate and we're constantly looking for like that next thing. Like we're the rarity. We are the minority in that most people kind of just do a, an average amount of work and then go home. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. In a diverse society, our voices are, I mean, we have an ability to actually capitalize on that, at least this is what I hear you saying is we're able to mm-hmm. capitalize on the fact that we do more than other people. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. It feels a little wrong to say that I do more than other people. Um, but That's I do fair. think that like the, the, because I don't, um, right. but the, I think that like what makes a diverse society superior, at least uh, what produces that infinite upside is the fact that, when with more different elements and people interacting with each other, you increase the likelihood of something amazing happening. And not only do you increase the, the probability of something amazing happening, you also, you also increase the possibility that that something amazing is going to turn into something more instead of getting suffocated in the cradle by right. some local bureaucrat who thinks it threatens his job. Like that, like, like I truly wonder, you know, I truly do wonder about the the great innovations and the amazing ideas that the world has missed out on because of um, a father uh, reprimanding his child or a local bureaucrat shutting something down um, because it, they felt like it threatened their job or, mm. um, you know, uh, offended somebody's ego, you know, who had a lot of power. I just, I really, truly wonder, and I think that in a diverse society, we lower the risk of that happening. Yeah, because not that the risk goes away, but we lower no, it. No, right. No. I think immediately of people like J.K. Rowling. My my thoughts immediately go to authors, right? I mean, some of the greatest works ever produced in the West have, especially in like contemporary times, in like modern consumerist times, have been kind of like. Well, they almost got squashed, right? You hear these stories of people like passing on the Beatles, right? They're like, ah, these guys won't go anywhere, right? Uh, the inability for people to like recognize talent, for example, like recognizing talent, the ability is actually exceedingly rare, right? It's almost as rare as talent is. You could say it's a talent in and of itself, right? So what you're pointing out is that we lower the chances of like... We, we still get brilliant writers and or we, we heighten the chances of us getting people like the Beatles because of the sort of society that we live in, right? The opportunity for us to have diversity of opinion as well. Exactly. Like when, if you can have a variety of different people in your society who don't have to be slammed into one, um, you know, into one fold, into one mold, um, you have the four members of the Beatles. Um, you, you make it possible for them to come together and then right. you make it possible for 
the the fact that you know there were some people who said, "Oh, these guys aren't going to go anywhere." Well, thank God, those people weren't the ones who decided whether we were allowed to hear the Beatles or not. Right. Because because our society wasn't set up to have those narrow gateways like that, where it was possible for somebody to just kind of cut it off at the pass. Uh, instead, because of the diversity of media distribution channels, because of people's ability to go and find and interact with what they wanted uh, to listen to instead of what they were told to listen to, uh, we were able to experience something incredible. Now, here's a question for you. Um You've got you've got a quote here that I want to talk about. Um, you say every group needs a mechanism for registering their needs and concerns with the community as a whole. This is your idea of like bureaucracy in a more diverse society, right? This can be done effectively through an outburst of violence, as we've seen with the Black Lives Matter protest. But no society can survive long if it's racked by wave after wave of violence just to ensure that each group gets a proper hearing. This means that the community must put in place a bureaucracy for the production of protocols, registering complaints, remedying of vote violations, and recognition of newly emergent self-identified groups in the community. Okay, I, I agree with you, right? Um, and this is kind of just like defining what we've been talking about up to this point. So my question for you is, okay, we assume this system. Can this system get too top-heavy? Yeah, and I, I feel like that's kind of what we're that's kind of what we're starting to experience here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think that at a certain point, um, you, oh, how do I put it? I really, you know, it's, it's such a meme to talk about, you know, political correctness and cancel culture. And I think that there's a lot of toxic discourse that happens around those things. But I do think that bureaucracy is one of the primary enforcement mechanisms of what you can and can't say. Yeah, and totally. the more diverse a set of rules uh, in a bureaucracy becomes, um, and the more uh, levels of abstraction you have to add to that bureaucracy in order to handle more and more diverse people groups and systems, um, the more likely you are to end up with a very undiverse society. Because Interesting. Okay. the levels of abstraction to be able to um, not offend people becomes so cumbersome and controlling that ironically you end up both paying the cost of diversity and not enjoying the benefits of diversity because now ideas that might offend one group that may be useful or correct or or interesting just interesting in their own right and worth consideration right. are now squashed by the bureaucracy because of their need to mediate and manage the relationship amongst the different minority groups and their um, their needs, their personal norms, and uh, their communal practices. Would you say that this kind of, so you kind of take your model that you've developed in your essay, and then you kind of compare that to what we have now, right? We're kind of getting a little top-heavy. You know, you kind mm-hmm. of move a toe out of line, and you get destroyed, as it were. Um, which, which I think... You know, despite the fact that there are a lot of people that make too much of a, a deal out of that, you know, they kind of like, you know, the cultural Marxism problem, right? Oh, yeah. Um, all that nonsense. I, I do think that that's still, you know, this this kind of like the wave of, of white middle class liberals and leftists is a problem and presents a, a problem with that. But do you think that this is a inevitability with the system that you've proposed by diverse society? Or is there ways that we can be doing this better? Um, yeah. Like, what do you think about that? Well, I think that the reason the reason that bureaucracy is continuing to expand here in the U.S. is because, frankly, it's good for the elite. 
for there to be more bureaucracy. Now, I do think that there, I think it's important to not be, um, not be naive and just posit some sort of undifferentiated mass of elite who are all the same. Cause I right. think there's a lot of internal division amongst the elites. I mean, we see, this is why the battle between tech versus government is so important right now, because in some ways tech represents the new elite who have gained money and fame through disrupting the old structures. And so there right. really is this, there's this old elite on the, on the one hand who are, you know, the fine, the finance, you know, finance in New York, the government NGOs, um, you know, and, uh, insurance, these, right. a, a lot of the like financial and political structures of old that have been around a while, um, they are sort of beginning to clash between with these newer structures that are emerging, uh, especially out here in the West. In a way, it's a little West versus East. It's like way oversimplification, but mm-hmm. it, it it's not inaccurate. Right. And so, like, I think that it, the expansion of bureaucracy will continue as long as it serves the interests of the elite. And I think that right now it does because the bureaucracy that's continuing to expand, it just buttresses their power. It's a way of putting a nice mask and face on it of like the language of diversity and inclusion is something you can adopt. And it's something that you can, you know, you can hire a chief people officer and a chief diversity officer, and you can have more diverse, um, uh, you know, HR plans. Chief, um, uh, chief happiness officer. Yeah, you can bring you can do all that and not fundamentally change the system. Right. And, and like people, let people let people buy like my, um, my wife's, um, sister-in-law, she works at this interesting nonprofit in, in Austin that trains, um, young, uh, young minority students in local high schools, how to code. And it's this way to be able to increase diversity in, um, tech, which is, of course, a noble goal. We want more people like tech is one of the most meritocratic places. I mean, if you're a young person who wants to make some money, uh, tech is a fantastic place to go make money. But but like, what is it? it, It's so cynical to me though. And and I don't blame that. And like, I don't think that my, my sister-in-law is, is um, to blame for this. This isn't about her. It's the, 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 the big tech companies who, who give money to this nonprofit, I guarantee you the conversation that they had in their boardroom was, okay, you know, we've got, uh, we need to increase our diversity levels, but there aren't enough black and Hispanic uh, coders. What are we going to do? Oh, hey, let's give this, let's give money to this nonprofit to help them be able to raise up a generation of um, black and Hispanic coders so we can hire them so we can meet our diversity quotas. Right. Like to me, it just like, I guarantee you that's the conversation that happened. And to me, it's like this increase of bureaucracy is it's a symptom of that. Um, we need to do what we can to appear like we're doing something, but without doing something. Right. And this kind of goes back to last week's conversation a little bit. I mean, there are a lot of things that we're touching on that we talked about a little bit last week, right? Uh, the first one is, this idea of kind of like stripping something of its meaning and then kind of just like instituting it, instituting new meaning in a way that is convenient for you, right? 
Uh, I think that's definitely what happens in like happiness training and, you know, goodwill meetings and stuff like that. Right. Um, with the exception of, of, of pizza parties, because pizza parties are the apex of corporate kindness, in my opinion. I accept slavery in return for pizza parties. Absolutely. 100. I'm, a, I'm a punk. So, of, you know, it kind of comes with the, with the territory as it were. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see like there's this manipulation of the system, right? Like very clever people and they're going to get more clever, right? This bureaucracy allows them to become more and more clever as time goes on, right? They're going to get more clever at analyzing the demands of culture and then kind of shifting the the seat of power, as it were, away from the demands while still kind of doing lip service to the demands themselves, right? And mm-hmm. I think that unless we are just as clever, we will miss it. We'll miss it every time it happens, right? And this is yet another critique of kind of like that middle class liberalism that you hear me ranting about, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, Zizek talks about how one of the things that a political movement should avoid is making specific demands because event, what the what the powers that be can do is they can meet all your demands and then they can say, okay, we met all your, all your demands. Now, why don't you go away? And then right. you're stuck. Because yeah. the reality is that your the thing you were demanding was not any one of those particular demands. It was some indeterminate, deep structural uh, eruption that you were expressing, and they effectively diffused your um, they effectively diffused that energy by checking off your wish list by giving the baby the binky, as it were. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, you're throwing a temper tantrum, just give him the banky and he calms down. Yep. Interesting. You know, I don't want to get too off topic. So let me know, but I want to get your thoughts on this, right? Because, and this is the second thing that I wanted to bring up about something that we brought up in last episode. And that is this idea of otherness that I've been working on a little bit, right? This, this kind of existential idea of otherness, because you read people like Martin Buber, you read people like Levinas, uh, Emmanuel Levinas, you read uh, others within that tradition, that kind of like existentialist tradition. And they talk about otherness as something that's like inherently offensive. They talk about how other people, because they are not us, are unscalable, right? Like we can't, we can't like get into their heads. Like I can't Mm -hmm. get into your head. So in my mind, the two strategies that I see, you know, that's a lot of angst that that actually produces a lot of anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are two kind of strategies that people enforce, as it were, right? Um, uh, uh, Heidegger calls this like losing yourself in the they, right? It, it, you know, rejecting authenticity and losing yourself in the they. And I think there are two ways that that strategy works itself out. And the first one is to pretend like the problem doesn't exist. Just to pretend that like the tension that other people bring that are different from us, right? Other cultures, essentially the tension that diversity brings, we just kind of pretend that it doesn't exist or we destroy the tension by destroying the other, Mm -hmm. right? And this is where racism kind of resides, right? Racism cannot handle the difference of other people. And so it attempts to destroy by any means necessary. And this is also why like racist narratives are oftentimes like pretty ridiculous. Like we'll make fun of people because of, their food, even though their food is like objectively delicious. Does that make sense? Like, do you see where I'm getting at? Yeah. For, forgive me for bringing up Zizek so much, but I mean, okay. he's, he's, he's really relevant here. He talks about how the proximity of the other is anxiety inducing. 
and how yeah. like being being too close to the other makes you it fills you with questions and concerns and you're not sure how to act or how to respond and what do they want from you and one of the yeah. reasons that the law exists is to protect people from the other it's to protect you from the anxiety of the other because uh, law and in this case bureaucracy right. bureaucracy puts a set of protocols in place that allows you to know what to do that creates this buffer between you and the other so that you can both engage in these protocols and do this little dance and the anxiety can go away and so i mean he talks about how the the jewish command to love thy neighbor it comes from the fact that the neighbor is very scary and so now you have some some direction a protocol you can follow to tame um, to, to domesticate that encounter with the other. Yeah, and you'll notice a lot of existentialists kind of trying to solve that in their own ways, right? Like Heidegger calls for like this radical, I wouldn't say it's individualism. Well, he would call it authenticity, right? You kind of like discover being again and search for your authenticity. I don't, I mean, I think it's interesting what Heidegger is saying. And I think that Uber, we don't need to get into that. But it's just interesting. You have this quote here where you say, uh, these societies also have to be transparent about the additional costs which increased levels of diversity impose on the community. And then you go into this, which I, I really like. Some small examples might be the additional time and money it took for Canada to print English and French on all their signs instead of simply one or the other, or the cost of having sign language interpreters at every televised press conference. More significant costs might be the mental burden of not being able to assume as many common norms when meeting a new person or the increasingly laborious process of communal decision making. And I think that this point about like like these cultural artifacts that were that we engage in, right? Like meeting someone that's different from you. I think that the danger of an enclosed community is actually that you lose yourself in that community, that you don't really have, and you don't demand of an identity for yourself, right? And in diverse society, the the nature of this of the diversity of the society requires you to make a demand of yourself to be yourself, right? Mm. And so you don't have the option of like losing yourself. You're because of the proximity of the other, you are constantly reminded, um, as Levinas would would point out right whenever you are around others you are reminded that you are an other for another other right mm -hmm. like you are also someone else's other and so you kind of have to always be like engaging in that conversation it like you know two magnets posed at opposite ends right you can never like really join together unless you like flip yourself on your back right and expose something of yourself or lose yourself into their community does that make sense yeah i, I think that a perfect example of this is like how it's really difficult to know how to greet people nowadays mm. because of COVID you meet somebody and it used to be the case that like, well, you know, maybe you would shake their hand, maybe give right. them a fist bump, maybe you'd give them a hug. Maybe you wouldn't touch at all. Um, but now like you meet somebody, there's so many questions, but how do I greet this person? How, how do we like, are we allowed to make contact? If we do, how, what's acceptable? And I think that that anxiety-inducing encounter with the other is, um, you're right, that in a diverse society, you're constantly being put in situations where you have to make a decision about what you're going to do. And make, and you have to make that decision from like a set of possible decisions. So it forces you to pick one, and you could be asked, why did you pick X instead of Y? Whereas in a non-diverse society, you can just 
always pick X without thinking because you're not forced to answer for it. You're not forced to make a decision. You just act on impulse and behavior. It's just wrote for you. But that constant need to make a decision to be able to be answerable for why X, not Y is an incredible mental burden. And that's the cost of diversity. Interesting. Truly. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we should uh, wrap up here to be hundred percent honest with you. I was about to say the exact same thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of different places we can go. Um, but I think that's a good kind of end to the conversation. Really, really interesting. I mean, I we've definitely, yeah, we definitely went in directions that I didn't anticipate, but anyway, until next week, Matthew, it was great chatting. Absolutely. Have a great week, brother. You too. Bye. See ya.